Welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Hey, well, I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Um, I'm calling this episode Culture Wars Are Destroying Education. But I got to say, they're getting some help, and they're getting some help from education. So I want to talk about that. And before I get into the, really the, the culture wars part of this thing, let me talk about what education and higher ed in particular are doing wrong in the first place. And part of that is, is how they're marketing themselves. Uh, you know, for, for years, I've been a little disturbed by hearing all of these schools, not just their business schools, but, part, but, but many of them with, with business schools or business degrees, saying that they are preparing our young people for the global economy. And then we start hearing all these statistics that suggest, oh, if you have a college degree, you're going to earn a million dollars over a lifetime. So everything got reduced down to money, the, the, what you're going to earn if you go to college. And I'm going to tell you, I don't necessarily believe that metric. I don't think going to college is what's going to make you wealthier. I think when they say, if you have a college degree, you're going to earn a million dollars. I think they're, they're doing cause and effect wrong here. I think the type of person that goes to college and is successful in college is probably the type of person who is going to make a million dollars. It's not the degree itself. It's not even necessarily what they're going to learn in college that's going to make them make the money. And, you know, and that same type of personality who may have gone to college may have gone a different route. And they too, because they have that type of personality, will find a way to make that million dollars if, if that's what drives them. And if they are motivated, especially commercially and economically, to do so. But here's the thing. When I was younger, and I realized I graduated from high school back in 1978, a long time ago, college wasn't necessarily marketed as the means to make more money. It wasn't even necessarily marketed as the path to a career. I mean, yeah, you could um, major in certain subjects, and, you know, and, and I did. I mean, I majored in architecture and engineering and, and a few other areas that I had meandered through. None of it was broadcast, by, by the way, or journalism. Um, but... You know, when you went, when you first went to college, it, oftentimes you, you initiated your first year or two with a liberal arts degree. And part of the whole notion of, of taking the liberal arts course, not only to check the boxes and knock off some of those required courses, but I got to tell you, part of it was to undo the prison that you were in through 13 years of grade school and high school. And, and I mean that. I mean, look, public school is an indoctrination factory. I mean, it's what they do. I mean, and, and I don't think they're even, you know, you know, they're pretty unabashed about that. You know, you, you teach history a certain way, you teach science a certain way, you teach you know, literature a certain way, you key in on American exceptionalism. And even back then, even before they coined that phrase and that euphemism for what I think is really a euphemism for uh, white supremacy, th this whole idea of, of using schools to make kids more patriotic, I mean, pledge allegiance to the flag every, you know, the start of every day. Even school board meetings can't take place without a Pledge of Allegiance. I remember one of my first assignments, and I think in kindergarten, 
or first grade, was learned was to learn to recite the na- the first verse of the national anthem. <laughs> Trust me, they don't want you reciting the third verse, but uh, yeah, so to re- recite the national anthem. So this idea of of really infusing your education with indoctrination into American patriotism and Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and, and all of the red, white, and blue stuff. Not to mention that all the school holidays, and well, frankly, most of the national holidays are are geared towards romanticizing war and you know defending democracy and all that other stuff. So I, I look, there's no question that that grade school and high school education is lacking. And it certainly is lacking in terms of um, developing or encouraging creative thought. It's about putting kids in a box and trying to make kids conform. Everything from, you know, from behavior to, um, you know, to uh, the idea that much of that education is going to be geared towards remembering and reciting and recalling what you, you know, what you're taught. Not necessarily thinking outside the box. So when you go to college, all of a sudden, those, those chains have been broken. Now you're in, in a whole new world. So the whole idea of going to college, when I was younger, and, and certainly before me, it was about enlightenment. It was about fulfillment. It was about going to school to learn more, to learn. Not just to be um, taught to what to recite, but to learn. And, and the idea of expanding your ability to gain knowledge and pursue that knowledge. That's what college was supposed to be for. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, like, like I said, you, you could major in subjects and, and kind of chart out a career as you went through school. But part of the reason you started your first you know, couple of years or semesters with liberal arts is so you, once you got out of that box that high school was, you could learn a little bit more about the world and find out what your, what your true aptitude was. I mean, look, when you've been put in, in, you know, in, in this you know, path in high school, this rigid construction there. And look, high schools are, are even designed to look like prisons. But I mean, so you're, you're put into those, that environment. And then your guidance counselor, if you were lucky enough to have one, uh, your guidance counselor is going to tell you what you, the grades that they pushed you to get in the subjects that they pushed you to take and learn in the manner that they taught them. They're going to tell you, okay, we've determined that you would be great at this, the X, Y, and Z. And not a whole lot of creativity and expression and design is encouraged uh, in, in school. I mean, you might get a little leeway as long as you are structurally sound in any of your essays um, that you, you did for various subjects. Uh, so... Writing may have, may have given you a little bit of leeway as long as you, you know, follow the, the rubric, right? You know, make your statement, uh, you know, build your case, do a summary and a conclusion. And if, you, if your essay had those things, then even if you, you were basically citing an unpopular opinion or a, a novel idea, you could still get a, eke out a good grade. <laughs> but that wasn't what they were driving, trying to drive you to do. So the whole idea, again, when you get into, into college, is that you're going to have different kinds of instructors. For one thing, you're, going, you're, you're, you're leaving your small town, all right? You're leaving your comfort zone when you go into college. So all of a sudden, you're exposed to kids. I, mean, I went to the University of Houston. 50,000 students were uh, enrolled there. 
I mean, kids from all over the world were there. Asia, Africa, you know, South America. I mean, every place. I mean, everybody. There were people from all over there. So you that even that was, uh, you know, kind of a little bit of a culture shock. And if you go over to a small town like I did, you uh, and all of a sudden you're a school with 50,000 students. You know, many of the athletic departments are going to, um, you know, pump out professional athletes and uh, various, you know, various sorts. I mean, so yeah, it's, it's a different, it's a different world. But the thing is that you become exposed to things that you are never going to be exposed to in your, in your little hometown. I mean, and your, and your teachers who are oftentimes, you know, really handed a fairly strict curriculum to follow. And I'm, and we're going to talk about school curriculums in a, in a bit. But I, I think the idea that there was a change at some point, and part of it maybe may have been toward trying to justify the cost of going to school. So now, if you start really being wary of of the cost of going to college, you, how do you how do you pitch that? We well, got to pitch that. Say, well, there's a cost benefit analysis. You go to college and you're going to earn more money. I mean, so unlike some countries where it's it's easier to go to college, it's cheaper, you can get your education paid for more easily. And I know I'm native, right? So everybody assumes all native people went to school for free. No, that's not true. It's simply not true. Uh, you know, there may be more funds available for kids to go to school now since native people expanded, you know, developed a gaming industry and, and various other means of, uh, of bolstering their, their own, um, you know, public finance within territories. But when I was a kid, Native territories didn't have a have money and 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 BIA funding. Forget about that. So, yeah, no native native kids don't go to school for free. So you can you can get that out of your mind right out of the out of the gate here. But when you start realizing, okay, now you've got to justify the expense of going to school. And school, you know, back then we're we're, we're starting to show um, an increase in their costs. And every year, tuitions were going up. Everything was getting more expensive. And of course now, you know, the cost of going to school is, is astronomical compared to when I went. So you've got you've to market it, right? So you market it as this means to, that, to make you more money. So even if you take on a whole bunch of student loan debt, doesn't matter, you're going to earn more. Well, that may not necessarily be true. I mean, it isn't just going to school and going through that drudgery, if that's the way you're, you're looking. If you're going to school... Only so you can check that box, get the piece of paper that says you went to school. So because that's going to translate into more money, they ain't going to get it done. If you don't expand your mind so you can see more opportunities, I don't mean just financial opportunities. I mean opportunities to, to excel in, in, in any number of things, especially creative things. Then, look, you're, you're, if you're only going to college to go to work for somebody, then you didn't need to go to college. You could have stayed home and did that. Because um, let me tell you this, and I'm going to repeat this a couple of times through this, through this episode. The wealthy elite, regardless of political party or, or where on the spectrum they claim to be, the wealthy elite, and yes, I'm talking about white people, they don't need the general population to be a, a population of thinkers. They need you to be workers. So even as they're marketing the college degree for advancement and salaries and that kind of stuff. They're still talking about you being, you know, one of the cogs in their, in their machine. They're not talking about you going off and, and, and doing something unique or, or certainly being their competitors. 
No, they're, they are really talking about, you know, about turning college into the means, maybe a recruitment tool so they can get better employees, but it's still about being in their employees. They want workers. They, I, and, and that's why you find when you, when you looked at some of the jobs that were available and you realize oh, they're asking for a, a two-year degree, a four-year degree, whatever else, you think, what does that have to do with the work that's being done here? And then when you go to work, you find out nothing you learned in college was really about the job that you're doing. So that bubble starts to burst. So when you start pitching, the idea of going to college is only for uh, financial gain and financial advancement. Now you've you, you made a big mistake because all along you should have said, look, going to school is about, about making you a more whole person. I mean, education, I should say, not going to school, but, but the idea of becoming more enlightened, becoming more universal in your, in your view of the world, that's all about making you a better person, not necessarily about, you know, fattening your wallet. And so when that got pitched and that became the drumbeat over and over and over again, then, of course, COVID hits and, you know, we see, you know, college enrollments drop and that kind of stuff. And, and, and all of a sudden, we're, we're also seeing technology change a little bit. So now they need people with technical skills more than enlightenment. So the idea of trade schools, and, and, they're, and, and now they'll, they'll actually make trade schools feel a little bit more like college. They'll, they'll even give you certificates or even degrees. But essentially, they're, they're trying to get you to go to trade schools now so you can learn how to put up solar panels. And I'm not dogging that. That's a good thing. They're no longer trying to expand your mind. They're trying to get you focused on what you're going to do to make money. And of course, if they pitch trade schools over a four or six, you know, or master's degree or PhD, now all of a sudden you can enter the workforce almost immediately. In fact, you know, you got some of these schools that you can, you know, start earning, earning as you, you know, as you learn, earn as you learn. So I think education itself. The, in the institutions of education, I think they screwed themselves. And you're seeing an absolute decline in enrollment across the board. I mean, for a while, uh, black women were uh, enrolling and, and pursuing education at a higher rate than anybody else. And, and, and you know why? Again, freedom. Freedom. I mean, black women saw an opportunity in, in education, regardless of where the education was taking them. They saw that as freedom, breaking, because, you know, women, black women had, you know, got, were double damned. They were black and they were women. So that's why you had that for a while. But even that starts to wane after a while. So I think the whole idea of how college was marketed was, was a big mistake. And I'm not saying you couldn't make some of those assertions about earning more money, but I think the idea of convincing people you need to go to college to prepare for the global economy. I think, I think even that was a, a mistake. Because now we screwed ourselves in local economies. We're telling everybody, I mean, look, when they teach you get a business degree, they're, they're teaching you to, you know, to come up with an idea, pitch the idea, start a company, and then you know, go public with it. Sell it off. And if you do it wisely, you can sell it off in chunks. That way you can get a second bite of the apple and that kind of thing. It's no more, you know, uh, you know, Sanford and Son, 
No, there's no more family business that you hand down generation after generation. Generational wealth is hand, handed down in cash. Not, not in terms of business legacy. Not so much anymore. I mean, there, there's, there's still a few companies you'll see around. You know, mostly, you know, again, construction companies, that kind of stuff, service industries, where it's something, something, and son. They, they rarely ever did it with daughters. I don't know why. They, again, some of the, you know, the sexist uh, uh, underpinnings of American society, I guess. But so that, I think, in, in of itself was, was going to cause some harm to education. But back to my, my initial thought and the one that I find more disturbing and it's more disturbing because of what it means politically and everything else. Culture wars. All right, we've seen it. We've seen the big push to, for one thing, demonize education, which, which is coming from the right for the most part. But you know what? The elite left, they're not defending education that much either. But the, but the, but the right, the white right, yeah, they're, they're going to, oh, yeah, they're just a bunch of elite, uh, you know, uh, uh, elite liberals. Rich elite liberals, because you, you can't be elite if you're not rich. So that's the way education becomes demonized. And you can literally be condemned or harassed or bullied if you're, you know, if you're educated in, in the workplace. I mean, oh, here comes the college boy. <laughs> so you know, that's, what, that's what you get, right? But it gets more specific than that because this idea of going after, um, well, now the big thing is it used to be... Um, uh, well, cancel culture was one of the ones that they were trying to push. What was the other word they were? Um, uh, I'll, th I'll think of it. There's another expression, but cancel culture, critical race theory, wokeism, all of this stuff has now become the talking points of the right. And they don't just stop at condemning this idea of becoming woke or becoming, uh, you know, uh, progressive. No, they get real specific. We're seeing books being banned at a rate that we've never, frankly, we haven't seen some, since McCarthy. Now I'm too, I'm too young for McCarthy, but I, I know about McCarthyism. But no, we're, we're seeing the, the banning of books. I mean, children's books. Anything that would basically open up a child's mind beyond what has always been the, the guardrails that schools have tried to put in place. So everything from LGBT issues, um, discussion of racism, uh, uh, American genocide. They don't really even teach that much about the Jewish Holocaust. But, you know, that'll get a lot more play than, than certainly the American Holocaust against Native people. So part of that culture war issue, and when we talk about things like wokeism and condemning that, and cancel culture, that was the other one that they, you know, they were pushing so much. Oh, political correctness, that's the one I was trying to think of. Yeah, oh yeah, we got to do away with all this political correctness. I'm not even sure what the hell that's supposed to mean. I mean, so we're not supposed to be politically correct? Being correct politically, does that mean being incorrect socially? I mean, it, it that's, doesn't even make sense to me. But what started happening was, we don't want the schools to make white children feel uncomfortable about American history or, or American literature or about science. We got to do everything we can to, um, it's funny because on the one hand, you, you hear all these people saying, 
we got to stop worrying about kids' feelings and just teach them. Yet, the overarching concern is about the feelings that white children might have. We don't want them to have to carry that white guilt. So the push against critical race theory, which isn't taught in, in, in uh, high school or grade school. I mean, there may be some discussion of race, but it's not critical race theory. Critical race theory, again, and I hate to have to always do this, but it's the analysis of public policy being driven by racism. Laws, regulations, you know, rules, guidelines that are driven out of racism. And we know that they exist. I mean, they exist in, in written in and unwritten policies across, across the board, everything from, from redlining to, you know, <laughs> to any number of things that, that would always put black or native or, you know, people of color, uh, Hispanic, anybody, anybody uh, that is non-white, put them in a di disadvantage for a job or for advancement or that kind of thing. This, you know, this whole, I always like this, well, where are you from? I don't know, Detroit. No, but where are you really from? Because they, they think you're Asian or they think you're Hispanic. And so they want you to name a country as if you just got off the boat or something. You know, and, and we've all gone through this to, to some extent. But so this effort by the right to condemn and, and then tie this to culture wars. And this is where, yeah, look, I, I do Native show. So where are you talking about all this other stuff? Well, look. That's how the mascot issue gets thrown into the culture wars. I mean, because you can get the right fired up about cancel culture because Native people are saying, look, we, don't, we shouldn't be used as mascots. You shouldn't be mocking us that way. You don't do it to anybody else. But when we bring it up, the first thing they say is, well, we're not paying attention to you. It's not driven by you. We know that it's the white liberal elite that's pushing this agenda. It's not Native people. Even I'm, I'm right here. I'm in the room. I'm the one who's bringing this up. But this is, this, is the, this is what we, we get met with, right? Time and time again. And then they'll try to find some sellout Native person or somebody who claims to be Native to say, oh, I'm fine with Native mascots. Uh, we're just be I think the idea of trying to get rid of mascots is about erasure. No, it's the mascots that are erasure. But see, this is, this is the challenge. That's how the mascot issue not only becomes part of the culture wars, but it really becomes a lightning point. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain. See, the other thing that the, the right was doing was beyond trying to use these culture wars issues to get people elected into state houses and into uh, national offices. They realized that part of the breeding ground for not only for future politicians, but the idea of, of changing the attitudes of, of kids is to push some of these culture wars into school board elections. And there was nothing more ripe for that than native mascot, the native mascot issue. We know school after school, state after state, where when the mascot issue was even looked at, the first thing that, that schools started to do, it happened in Lancaster, you know, several years ago, happened in Cambridge, a school that I, that I went to, that I pushed for. They, they ran school board members solely on the mascot issue and of course, they had to throw some culture wars issues, other cultural wars in there, like critical race theory and, you know, LGBT issues. And of course, all this idea, I mean, this myth that's, that, they, <laughs> that there was litter boxes in school because kids were being allowed to pretend they were animals. Uh, um, and this was getting along the same, uh, pushing that envelope about um, 
kids being able to determine their own sexuality or, uh, you know, uh, uh, gender realities and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's insane how far the myths went with, with all of this stuff. But the mascot issue was clearly one of the ways, it was actually even one of the ways that you could get not just the right ignited and energized, but even the people on the left. I mean, look, it wasn't just a bunch of right-wing hacks that, uh, that were threatening me as I was arguing against mascots in some of these schools. It was just white people. Didn't matter what their political stripes were. But the mascot issue actually drove people into that right-wing corner, right? So now you get school boards that start to really tilt towards the right. And of course, this gets problematic because that means you're probably not going to have really educated people on the school boards. You're going to have non-educated school board members trying to select superintendents. And, and look, when I was a kid, superintendents were, were sometimes you know, the most advanced janitorial staff. I mean, they were, they were guys, they were the workhorses of the school. But nowadays, it's the highest paid job in, in a school district. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Even small school districts are paying superintendents a real sizable income. And I'm not saying they don't deserve it. I'm a little concerned that superintendents get paid so much and teachers get paid so little, but that's another issue. So this, this starts to change the culture of a school. It starts to change. I mean, when you, we, all of a sudden you've got school board members saying, I want this bo uh, book banned from the library. I don't want this school or this book um, used in literature classes. I mean, some of the, the, some of the books that we grew up with, To Kill a Mockingbird, Lord of the Flies. I mean, I mean, I mean when, I, when I think about some of the books that, that are now being, being put on the on top of the and I'm not even talking about new, more progressive views books. I mean, books that you know, have been around for a long time. So what happens is, you again, by changing the culture of the school, now the schools are also signing on to this notion that high school is about getting kids into the workforce, not necessarily serving as the means for preparing these kids for higher education. And look, and I get it, not everybody who goes to high school and gets a, college, a high school degree is gonna go to college. But I think everyone should be able to. That's the question. Are you gonna be denied advanced education? Because again, the way it was, was college was a totally different education experience. Not just because you were paying for it, but they didn't have the same guardrails. And depending on what kind of school you went to, obviously if you went to one of these Christian uh, schools, you, Oral Roberts University or something like that, you, it might've been a little different. And HBCUs might have been, had a little bit of a different view too versus the Ivy League schools or the, or the community um, um, colleges and that kind of stuff. But in general, you were going to get a broader view of the world when you went, went to college. And now that's being discouraged. I, you know, I don't know how much guidance counseling is really giving every student in high school the encouragement to pursue higher education. And when I mean higher education, I'm not, I'm not condemning trade schools. In, in fact, I'm, I'm a big fan of BOCES and, and a lot of these other things. But you know what? I don't think you should, you should take BOCES just because 
you want to, in seventh grade or, or ninth grade I'm, I'm, or whatever, you, that you should be determining what you're going to do for the rest of your life. The view that I had towards my own children was keep as many doors open to you as possible because you're never going to know which door you really want to pursue or how many you want to pursue. So take every opportunity you can. Get as diverse an education on, on, on everything from trades, you know, to, to politics, to uh, literature, to language, science, math. Do, do as much as you can. And don't be afraid to find something that you like at a young age. I, I've said the same thing to my kids about relationships. <laughs> don't fall in love at 15 years old and, uh, and, and start playing the rest of your life around a 15-year uh, a romance at 15 years old. No, <laughs> you, you, you haven't lived yet. Look, I went to college. I studied architecture, engineering. And in the end, I did some engineering work. I, I worked at a place called Composite Factory. We, 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 we had government contracts to make various products for you know, government and for industry. So some of that background helped, but in the end, this is what I do. You know, I, I became more of a, of a talking head relating to Native issues and an activist. I understand politics and religion in ways that I never thought that I would understand. And part of it is you have to, to do the work that I do. You, that's what you had to learn. I had to learn how to write. I had to learn how to speak. But I didn't take any college courses for any of that stuff. Yeah, you know, I had a couple of, you know, your basic writing classes and you know, literature classes, but no, I didn't, I didn't take any journalism classes. Should have, didn't. I didn't know that this was what I would end up doing, and nobody does. And I also don't think the pressure should be put on a 16, 17, 18-year-old to, to have his life charted out for him. Again, leave the options open as much as possible. But more importantly, don't just close, the, don't just worry about the doors that might be closed. Keep your mind open. So now what's happening? Well, you've got schools that are trying to figure out, colleges, I should say, you know, universities, colleges, that are trying to figure out the new reality. It's, it's like media. Look at, look at how media has learned how to, they're struggling because of the internet and because of, you know, um, social media and that kind of stuff. So newspapers have gone out of business, radio stations, television stations, you know, all of these, these forms of media have changed. The landscape has changed. Well, so has education. And, and, it's, and it's changed because of, of, of bad marketing, because of culture wars. I mean, look, a college campus was a place that you learned how to protest. I mean, that, that's, what, that, that's what we did when we were, you know, in the, in the 70s. In, in, for me, 70s, but for some in the 60s. That starts to quiet down a lot in the 80s. and 90s, it's almost non-existent. And now... College campuses look like ghost towns. Yeah, and I know, no, they're blaming a lot of it on COVID and that kind of stuff. And, and of course, remote learning and, you know, uh, you know college uh, over the internet and that kind of stuff. So I realize it's changed. And, and it was probably, it probably needed to change with the times. But we're still seeing, and, an, you know, enrollment drop off a cliff here. And it's not any cheaper to run a college whether, you know, whether they got full enrollment or not. I don't know. There's some colleges that are still turning people away. There's no question about that. But it's getting harder and harder to make those colleges viable. And part of it is, are you really doing what you're in? I mean, I don't know what your mission statement was when a, when a college began. But I suspect it wasn't about job creation. 
I don't, I don't believe that almost that any college in their initial mission statement or philosophy was about, you know, was always going to be a job placement. I mean, that started to be a thing, right? I mean, we, even when I was young, they talked about how, how many people would, would graduate from the college and immediately get, you know, find job placement. But again, if we're not talking about enlightenment and, and broadening somebody's horizons, their educational horizons, then I think we're selling, well, we're not just selling education short. We're, we are, we're destroying education. And the culture wars is a big part of that. So the idea that, you, that you know, certain, not just books and reading material, but subject matter is under attack by the right. And now you've even got the right going after um, uh, public broadcasting. You know, all of this uh, corporation for public, uh, public broadcasting, all these all these funding, all this funding is being cut for any of these education. It used to be that you know, the, the um, FCC had a certain requirements about news being, being a public service, not being entertainment. See, everything's turned into dollars and cents now. Everything's turned into dollars and cents. So what happens is we start literally destroying education because we're trying to make it fit through fit through a keyhole that, that, that most of us don't want to pursue. I don't know how you empower young people today. One of the ways you did it was to encourage them to pursue education. But look, if you're not going to educate, if you're only going to you know, try to prepare people for a job, then I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of ways to get work. And and I and, and look, we live in a time where you know a lot of mon very mundane jobs are paying pretty good wages. So if we start telling people, you know, you're better off making fifteen dollars an hour at McDonald's and Burger King, than you know uh, at at sixteen and seventeen and eighteen years old, and moving into management within within fast food, then going into debt for four or six or eight years. Because that's the way college is being pitched, as, as just this money pit. There has to be something that, different done. And, and my, my first plea to colleges is, let's teach some truth. Let's not bow down to those who are condemning, you know, critical race theory or wokeism or whatever else. I mean, look, as a Native person, I know how badly history was taught from a Native perspective. We never, nobody ever learned about residential schools or about the massacres or, I mean, Indians, Indians was taught as the first period of American history. Indians, followed by discovery, followed by colonization, followed by revolution. But Indians ended. It was a period that never got talked about again. Even as my kids and even grandkids have gone to school. When they and and I and look where I went to school, we didn't have uh, a native. I, I went to school in in, um, in a in a small white town, so the pursuit of native education isn't like here where where some of the schools where you know I live here on the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation, and the students here go to several school districts and they all have some specific native education program, Iroquois studies or something along those lines, maybe Seneca language. 
We didn't have that when I went up, when I grew up. But even those subjects are are still teaching about our culture as an ancient culture. We're, they're teaching about Seneca's as if only in the past. I mean, I, I, I remember my one of my grandkids having a doing this side by side analysis of the Haudenosaunee versus the Algonquin, <clears throat> and showing the different philosophies between the two. But they were still talking about two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago. They didn't talk about where the, where any of us were now. So we're not being taught about as as a living, breathing people anymore, and that that's where the mascot issue becomes a problem. We aren't taught about policy or law or any of those things, nor do Native people ever get included in a conversation about racism, which is absolutely incredible to me. We were the first people enslaved in the Western Hemisphere. We were the first people persecuted simply by the color of our skin and the distinction of, of our culture. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, and I'm not taking anything away from the punishment that the black people endured being you know, enslaved, kidnapped and enslaved, and the whole in industry being built upon uh, on, on chattel slavery. But you know what, Native, Native people were, were uh, lock, locked into that too. But we're not gonna teach about that. And instead, oftentimes when we teach about certain historical figures, we have a tendency to go down a path like Harriet Tubman, had divine intervention. Her prayer and her Christian beliefs are, are, are what helped her navigate all of these you know, journeys of the Underground Railroad. We, we learn about Frederick Douglass, but he always gets talked about in, in terms of how, how he could speak like a white man. You know, how, how he could dress like a white man and all that other stuff. I mean, we don't really talk about the people, especially today, that are still in the struggle. I mean, white people pretty much taken over the Martin Luther King narrative, and they mis mischaracterize, misquote, misrepresent almost everything that Martin Luther King represented. And if you deviate too far off that path, that's where this notion of critical race theory and cancel culture and wokeism comes in. I think colleges need to do better. I think colleges have to put a stake in the ground and say, no, we're not gonna be dictated to. We are going to provide enlightenment to students. And, and yes, that enlightenment will probably serve you well into your future. But you're gonna learn some things in college that are not only gonna open your eyes, but that are going to encourage you to pursue more and more education. And maybe travel the world a little bit, maybe view the world differently, not just through a red, white, and blue lens or ball cap or whatever. I mean, the political system in the United States is, is incredibly uh, flawed. But it was designed that way. It didn't go bad. It didn't, it didn't get broken. It was designed this way. It, but it starts to catch up. Eventually, all this stuff. Look, when you build, when you create a country where white people are the, are the, the ones to be served by it, and everybody else are, are, you know, are just collateral damage along the way, 
whether it's a, a Chinese immigrant or an Irish immigrant or a, an Italian immigrant or whether it's black people being dragged to this continent, these continents in chains or native people being massacred or enslaved or, or having the resources stolen. It was all for one reason. It was, to, it was for the advancement of white people. That's what it was always about. The idea of expansion and imperialism, that was about gaining more money for white folks. And if we're afraid to teach that because we think it's going to offend Johnny or little Billy or Bobby, they should know. And everybody should know today, especially if you're white, how you are still benefiting from the sins of your, of your American history. Everybody should know it. And they should know it. So when we talk about try to, trying to, to adjust things and fix things and correct some of the, the, the ills of the past, it isn't just viewed as this notion of reparations. Yeah, maybe there are reparations due. Not, not maybe, I'm sure they're, they're due. But when we talk about like truth and reconciliation as, as it relates to residential schools, if you don't know what they were, how can we even have a conversation about it? If you don't know what Native people have endured, how can you even begin to wrap your head around the suicide problem that exists in Native territories or the growing suicide rate amongst Black people? If you don't understand what Black people or Native people ever went through and continue to go through, again, I'm going to talk about this on my radio show, but I, there, there's a lot of buzz because of Killers of the Flower Moon, the story of the Osage murders of the 1920s. But that's born out of U.S. policy, this notion that we are incompetent and we need to have, we need to be regarded as wards of the state. That's what created the mess in, in Oklahoma for the Osage. Even when they had money, they were deprived the freedom to use it. They, they were thrust into a circumstance where people could take advantage of them. And it wasn't just white men trying to marry Native women to t steal their money. Some of it was Native women marrying white men hoping they could have, have access to the money because if you were full-blooded, you were deemed incompetent and you couldn't have control of your own money. But if you had a white husband, you could. Or if you were half-breed, you might be able to. The, the amount of racism that Native people were experiencing, and look, now people are becoming aware of it with the Osage, but the idea that we are so incompetent that we had to have white guardians, that didn't end in the 1920s. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was a law specifically passed with that same mentality. Oh, Native people are incompetent. They can't run gaming. They're going to be overrun by the mob. They're incompetent. We're going to have to put the states involved in, in the... We've been fighting for decades against state control over our economies, over our lives. The federal government, because they believe they have the power to do so, pass a law that puts the state in our business, in our gaming business. And what do the states do? They start wringing their hands because they're going to get some money here. Even in states where they didn't have gaming. New York State, it was, it was unlawful to have casinos in New York State. But they figured out how to make money off of native gaming. And not only did they figure out how to make money off of us, they knew that they could loosen up all those tight asses in their electorate to say, you know what? Legalized gaming. We're already in the gaming business. We're in the gaming industry through Native people, and we have lotteries. We might as well go all in and start taking some of that gaming market away from Native people. Yeah, we're taking their money now, but we don't need to take their money if we take their gaming away. 
And the federal government created that. Why? Because they deemed us as incompetent. They, we need to have guardians. We needed to be treated as wards of the state. That didn't, didn't end in the 20s. It's 2020s now. It's 100 years, and we're still going through the same thing. But if you aren't taught this in school, if you don't know anything about the Osage murders, if you don't know about residential schools, if you don't know the, the unholy relationship between churches and government when it came to the, the, the indoctrination of Native kids, look, I know that grade school and high school are indoctrination factories for all kids in the United States, but none more so than with Native people. Because unlike with white kids, Education wasn't even, wasn't even really an issue with, with our kids. Our kids weren't educated in residential schools. They were, they were fed a big dosage of, of church. They were abused. The boys were taught to be soldiers, and the, and the girls were taught to be maids, servants for white people. Yeah, not so much slaves anymore, but it's pretty much the same thing. That's... We weren't taught to be fathers or mothers or to be in business or to pursue careers. No, we need to find, we need people to fill the bottom end of that social structure. And we can't have you being Indians down there. We got to kill that. And we've got to have somebody occupy those spaces. So that's you. That's, but if you're not taught that, and look, this message is, is even for the HBCUs, Howard University. It's great to have the 1619 Project, but there were issues going on before 1619 and since 1619. Racism didn't end with the Civil Rights Act or the, or the abolishment of slavery. And it was never just about black people. So if you HBCUs aren't going to even provide a space for black students and other students of color to learn about how broad-based some of this stuff was, then we're going to do the same thing. We're going, to, we're going to teach about the Tulsa massacre and not mention the Osage murders. We're going to teach about the Osage murders and not mention the Tulsa massacres or any of the other massacres that took place in cities across the United States where black people were being murdered in, in mass. And we're going to pretend that the last mass murder of Native people took place in the 1890s. We're going to pretend that making our lives almost unlivable today in, with everything from abject poverty to reducing our land, size, our land holdings to such a point that we can't sustain a livelihood off of it. So that we represent the highest suicide rate in the United States the highest dropout rate, the highest murder rate, the shortest life expectancy. Native people have the lowest life expectancy, life expectancy. And we top the list in everything from infant mortality to the death of mothers during childbirth. Every list you don't want to be on. And, and look, they study stuff. They know it's true. But they never want to put it together. They want to suggest that somehow we were not able to, to survive back when the United States was doing bad things. 
that we, we were somehow traumatized through the bad era of the United States. It's all better now, but we're, we just can't seem to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need education. And I don't mean indoctrination. We need to encourage diverse thought, diverse conversations. I know the likelihood of a, of a young Native kid in any of the school districts around here talking about any of the stuff that I'm talking about on my shows, in their classrooms, in their contemporary studies, or even in their Iroquois studies programs. No, it's, it's not happening. I even know some of the instructors in some of those programs who resent what I do. Because of what? Because I encourage resistance? Well, you're damn right I do. I do encourage resistance. And I won't accept the fact that just merely existing, our existence is not our resistance. Our existence gives us the opportunity to resist. But if we don't, and, and if, for anybody who doesn't, for anybody who sees the injustices in this country and fails to take any action to mitigate those injustices, then you are complicit in those injustices. It's an obligation that we have as human beings to resist oppression of ourselves and others. And if we don't do it, then we're complicit. Then we are the oppressors too. But if we don't teach this, look, we know that there's incredible works that were done by Baldwin and uh, you know a, a King and uh, uh, Malcolm X. We know that there's some great things that have been written over the years that could inspire young people. But we shouldn't reduce them down to sound bites. We should teach people what some of those experiences were and how people persevered or didn't. Because I think we also have to teach that. We can't just make it all seem like that we have won because we're still here. We can't glorify suicide or dying for a cause. I, by all means, let's glorify fighting for one. But I will never glorify dying or killing. I think the way that we fight for justice is not to be unjust. But if we're not even going to learn about this stuff, because I'm sorry, higher ed, you're, you're failing the people of this country, including my people. I, uh, there are plenty of Native people who go off to college. But you know what? <laughs> Your colleges have become the same thing that the high schools have been. Indoctrination factories. I understand there's certain things that you learn in education about standardizing things like accounting principles or understanding law. But it's not just about understanding law as it's been practiced, but how do you challenge unjust laws? Don't just teach me all the precedences that can be, that can be cited. Teach me about the ones that can be overturned. 
And I don't mean just overturned so you can, you know, abolish abortion or rights of people. But how do you expand rights? How do you take flawed legal principles like the Doctrine of Christian Discovery or the U.S. Constitution and fix them? If you're not going to teach that, if you're not going to spend core study on critical race theory to show that how racism has shaped laws and policies and rules and regulations and behaviors and the industry and those and the same all those rules and regulations and, and behaviors in industry not just in government then you're selling your people out i stand by my initial statement that culture wars are destroying education but they're getting help and they're getting help from you the educators i think it's really time that we have a broader view of what education is. And I'm not just saying <laughs> trade schools is an alternative to college. I don't mean that. I Look, there has to be an encouragement for people to write. I mean, well, look, we live in an era now where, look, from a Native standpoint, we're seeing more Native creators of, of, of content for entertainment, whether it's film or television or, or music or whatever else. But it... I don't want Native people producing the same crap that uh, the non-Native people have been producing about us. I want the hard truths to be put out there. And, and it should. And I'm, it must make people uncomfortable with their history. Don't tell me we can't call what the Native people experienced a genocide. What we've experienced has been the longest genocide the world has ever seen. What we... What, what Native people have experienced isn't just a Holocaust uh, perpetrated by an evil regime. It's a Holocaust that's been perpetrated by country after country after country after country, generation after generation, century after century. And we need to teach it that way. We need to tell the truth. We need to stop glorifying and romanticizing these heroes. Oh, yeah, it's great. They finally got rid of all of the Confederate or the military bases named after Confederate generals. It took this freaking long to do that? In the meantime, in Albany, on the Capitol Mall, right in front of the Capitol, is a statue of Philip Sheridan on a horseback. Philip Sheridan, general. I guess he's from the Albany area. That's why it's there. What's he famous for? The only good Indian's a dead Indian. That's what he's famous for. Nobody's tried to topple that, that statue yet. Yet. We're not even having a conversation about it. But you march kids by that on their field trips, and nobody ever says, let me tell you what this guy's famous for. Because there's only one quote he's associated with. Oh, yeah, he's associated with, with military service, civil war, but mostly killing Native people. Let's tell the truth and let some of those kids in the fourth or fifth grade say, why do they have a statue of him here then? Let him start asking that question when he's in fourth or fifth grade. I'm amazed at how fast time flies when you're involved in this kind of work. 
my 60s crept up on me real fast. I thought I was going to be 30 forever. I still have work to do, but we need help. And we need it from high school teachers. We need it from college professors, guidance counselors. But we also need it, need the media to step up and not be so afraid to pr produce content that might be a little uncomfortable. I've talked about some of the issues that, I've, that I have with public broadcasting, radio and television. And I'll continue to, to you know, to lambaste them for, for misrepresenting Native issues. I mean, they stick Veterans Day right in the middle of our, of the, our special month, Native American Heritage Month. And then we got to hear nothing about Native veterans. Like our people, our only claim, the only thing that's honorable about Native people is military service, serving the very military that killed our own people. Let's tell some truths. Let's tell the truth about code talkers and how many people were coerced into doing that and do letting their language be utilized by the military as it was being destroyed in residential schools. Let's juxtapose, let's, let's tell both sides of that. Let's not pretend that somehow our languages got saved because they, because they got used in World War II. No, they were still trying to destroy our languages. And many of those men who were code talkers were forced into it. We need to tell some truths. That's the education we need to have. Let's, I mean, I still have people ask me, what's a buffalo soldier? Most people don't even know what a buffalo soldier is. They don't even understand that Marley's song, Buffalo Soldier, was, was sarcastic. He wasn't praising buffalo soldiers. He was condemning the fact that these black men were now fighting for America. The same America that enslaved them and beat them and chained them, broke their families, took away everything, and then gave them something for killing Native people and calling them Buffalo soldiers. Let's tell some truths. This is the subject that I'm going to talk about going forward. It's the first time that I've actually addressed it head on to really come after, go after education the way I have tonight. But I think this is a conversation we need to continue to have. And look, I got to tell you, my phone doesn't ring a whole lot. I don't get a whole lot of people saying, hey, would you come speak at my college about some of the things I've heard on your show? Yes, I can. Just don't be so scared to call. Don't be scared to have some tough conversation. I'm not going to radicalize anybody any more than they need to for a healthy society, that is. I want to thank you for giving me enough time to, to make my argument about education and hopefully improve it. I'm not doing it to condemn education. I'm doing it as an effort to improve education. So let's, let's do that. Let's empower our youth. Let's empower the educators to really educate not indoctrinate. And let's do it now. Let's do it now and, and push back against the so-called culture wars and that kind of thing. 
Again, I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native.